All right, everyone, um, let's get started. I do want to get through quite a bit today. So how I want to finish the course up is I want to first conclude that review we went through starting last class. Then I want to turn to the practice exam and um, I want to sort of hear what issues people thought of and saw and the framework they might use to apply to resolve those, and then I'll also um, mention anything that doesn't get caught that I intended to put in there. Um, and then you know, I'll briefly have a few concluding remarks at the end of the class. So the last few topics I want to talk about in the review format are substantive judicial review, and that's really the Vavilov approach. Aboriginal law and administrative law, the charter and administrative law, and very briefly federal court, and the question of standing. So substantive judicial review, um, you want to keep in mind, of course, that even when we're talking about substantive judicial review, we are always on some level talking about jurisdiction, tying it back to that first principle. The question is, is this the type of order or result that the legislature intended to allow the executive to make? Is it within the jurisdiction of what the legislature intended? Using that presumption that we didn't intend you to make unreasonable decisions or on some issues, incorrect decisions based on the standard review coming out of Babylon. So just if you have that in the back of your mind, we're always talking jurisdiction. That helps you ensure that you're right at a high level, on the right track at a high level. We went through the history of the evolution of the standard of review. You know, for your exam, I certainly don't need you to trace any evolution. Um, I do think that evolution, though, is helpful for you to understand Babylon and necessary for that reason. Uh, on the exam, what I want to see is the Babylon framework understood, set out, and then applied. And I want to be very clear, um, if you walk out of your exam and you're like, I thought that there um, you know, wouldn't be a right to an oral hearing, and the person next to you says, I thought there was a right to an oral hearing. You, we're both right. I, I, how you, the ultimate conclusion you get to doesn't matter to me, because judges are going to see things differently. They're going to see uh, the Baker factors leading to one or another procedural right being available or not being available in different circumstances. And I don't care what the conclusion is unless it's so absurd that it, you know, it's outside the realm of possible. Um, there's going to be tough calls, and I don't care which way you resolve those. I want to see the issue spotted, the framework set out, and the framework applied. And you know, don't worry about how you, uh, how you ultimately land one way or the other. Um, so when you're looking at the substantive review, the first thing that you want to ask yourself is what is the standard of review? And the first question you want to ask yourself then is, well, has there been a legislatively mandated standard of review? Most likely, if that exists, is coming out of the Administrative Tribunals Act. In the absence of a statutorily mandated standard of review, you're off to a Babilov approach, right? 
And when you're doing the Vavilov approach, you're starting with this presumption of reasonableness, and then you're asking yourself, are you in any of the exceptions to that presumption of reasonableness? The first one that would be obvious if it uh, comes up is if there's a statutory appeal mechanism that rebuts the presumption of reasonableness, and then you are in the Hausen and Nicolaisen ordinary appellate standards, correctness on questions of law, palpable and overriding error on questions of fact or mixed fact and law. The second more tricky exception to the presumption of reasonableness is when the rule of law requires there to be a correctness review. And you'll remember that rather vague sounding general exception is broken down into three more concrete situations. Constitutional questions, questions of law, sorry, questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole, and jurisdictional boundaries. You want to remember on those constitutional questions, these are questions like, does this law fall within the division of powers? Is this law constitutional? And what is the scope of an Aboriginal right or a treaty right? However, when you are applying the particular facts of a case to a correctly understood constitutional standard, that's the Charter Values Framework. Right? That's, that's not where you're getting the correctness review. It's only when you're doing these high-level constitutional questions, you know, is this constitutional division of powers, what is the scope of these Aboriginal and treaty rights? These are the questions that require final determination by the courts. Questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole, you're thinking things like the scope of solicitor-client privilege, the rules surrounding an abusive process. These things that transcend the particular statutory regime at issue and have impacts across the legal system more broadly. Can't be the case that this communication is privileged before one tribunal and not privileged before another. That just doesn't work. Competing jurisdictional lines, you want to remember that clearly what we're talking about here is questions of whether you are exclusively in one tribunal or another. The more nuanced question is what standard of review will be applied when there's overlapping jurisdiction, both tribunals could take the matter, and the question is which tribunal should take the matter. The jurisprudence is not 100% clear on that, but it appears the question of who should take it will be reviewed in a reasonableness standard. Whereas the exclusive jurisdiction, who must take this, will be correctness. Yeah. If you have portions of an appeal that would appear to be on a correctness standard, say there's a question of um, 
the correctness of the abusive process of the um, the admin decision. Yeah. But then there's also more substantive questions. Can you have a reasonableness and a correctness on different sides? That's a great question. I'm really glad you raised it. And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Um, if the basis to get a correctness standard is not the statutory appeal mechanism, but the nature of the issue being determined, that doesn't um, expand out to other, it's not like a, a foothold to get the whole thing on a correctness standard. That's a very good question. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, could you say that more time? So, uh, if the reasons are uh, court will definitely presume reasonableness first, but if the reasons are not sufficiently qualified enough, uh, that does not mean the decision will be quashed. The court will then consider correctness analysis. No, that doesn't sound right. That it sounds a lot like the proposal that we watched uh, Professor Macklin make that the court didn't accept. And if actually, we are given a problem. Exam. Yeah. So what will be our conclusion then? Well, so this is just getting the standard of review. So we have to go through applying the standard of review next. So in your exam, you want to be sure that the first thing you're doing is identifying the proper standard of review and then applying that standard to your facts. And it's the application I'll turn to in a second. But identifying the standard of review Frankly, coming out of Vavilov should be a, a, a quick exercise. You should say there's, a, there's no statutorily uh, mandated uh, standard of review, if that's the case. If there is, then that's your answer quickly and easily. So therefore, I go to the Vavilov framework. I start with the presumption of reasonableness. Um, that can be rebutted in three circumstances, none of which are present here. So therefore, the reasonableness framework applies. So that would be a fine answer for identification of the standard of review. If, if one of the uh, exceptions exists, then you say there is a constitutional question as to the validity of this uh, federal legislation that's being asked of the tribunal, that would be reviewed on a uh, correctness standard. Yeah, so th that would be the, uh, the way you would attack a standard review question with the standard review component. It's when you get to the application of the standard review, so when you have to go through that full Vavilov uh, framework on how to apply the standard review, how to apply reasonableness most specifically, and um, you know that's when you'll get to the ultimate outcome of what the court would do with this um, with this decision. So I'm going to move on to applying, but yeah, yeah. Maybe similar to Ben's question, but I think you mentioned in class that where there is a Yes. And then that standard would be applied differently due to two different Yes, that is a very complex question and one of the things that's left as sort of an unanswered question coming out of Vavilov. But yes, what, we're the, what you're getting at there is if you have a statutory appeal right, but it's limited, you can bring a statutory appeal on questions of law alone. And you say, well, there's an error of law here. But there's also a complete misunderstanding of the facts and findings of fact that are just you know, outside of what anybody could possibly think of. 
uh, wouldn't make sense if you were bound to only do the statutory appeal, but you also have to give effect to the legislature saying it's only on questions of law. So you have a right to do both the statutory appeal and a judicial review. Most likely what would happen is they would be heard together and you would have your judicial review standard applied to the questions that are not carved out for the statutory appeal. So you'd say, oh, do the questions of law in this process, we'll do the, um, the questions of fact, but then a judicial review process, we'll hear it all together. So it's a complicated thing. No one's really happy with that as an outcome, but it is the upshot of, of the Babylon framework. Yeah. So there has to be a statutory appeal mechanism to get the statutory appeal standard, correct? Yeah, you have to. There has to be something in the statute that says you may bring an appeal to this court. Yeah, yeah and if that same question is being decided in the judicial review, you fall under the Babylon framework. If you're doing a judicial review, you fall in Babylon framework. Yeah, exactly. But the the court may say, I don't want to hear this in a judicial review. You know, do a statutory appeal on that, but. Yes, like you, yeah, if you're just reviewing the Babylon. This is a really nuanced point that is unsettled and I think is going to be clarified. Um, it's not something I anticipate I would likely work into an exam because it's, it's tricky. But you're showing a deep understanding of the tensions, which is excellent. All right, any other questions on the selecting the standard of review before I move into applying the standard of review? All right, so applying the standard of review within the Babylon framework is, you know, I think where most of your energy is gonna be spent on the exam. Uh, this is an important part to show that you've grasped the Supreme Court of Canada's guidance on how to do a, a reasonableness review. I would certainly expect that you, um, you might wanna review that part of Babylon pretty carefully in your studies. I think that that's probably the part of that case that will also come up most regularly in your practice. So showing a deep understanding of how to apply a reasonableness review would certainly be something that's getting at that third component of how I grade, uh, of getting that deep understanding. So you'll remember the Supreme Court of Canada said, look, it, what makes a decision unreasonable? Not incorrect, but unreasonable. And they say there's broadly two categories. The first is a failure of rationality internal to the reasoning process. Something about the way you've done your reasoning just isn't rational, doesn't make sense. You can't get from A to B the way you, you said you could. Um, now the court said this isn't a formal logic exam. You're not saying, aha, you seem to have drawn a conclusion from these you know, presumptions, but you haven't ruled out this third negative, so you know, it, your if-then doesn't quite totally track. That, that, that's not what they're looking at. They're saying, does this follow an internally coherent path of reasoning that's rational and logical in a, in a broad sense? It's not, they say, a treasure hunt for error. We're not saying there's one little part of this that seems like you made a, a slight mistake and so therefore the whole thing falls. But they're saying as a whole, can I trace this? Is this a rational, coherent um, path to get through this reasoning process to get to this conclusion? That's what you're looking for on this first branch, an internally 
coherent reasoning process. So the first component is really internal to the decision itself, internal to the reasons itself. Because we remember, Vavilov has this reasons first approach where the focus of judicial review will be on a careful and respectful review of the reasons that were offered for the decision. Not simply assessing whether the outcome you know, falls within broadly a range of acceptable outcomes, but seeing if that outcome is supported by reasons that explain how you get to that outcome. So that's the first broad component of a Babelov analysis. The second is they ask, look, is this decision untenable in light of the relevant factual and legal constraints? So here you're looking outside of just the rationality of the reasons itself, and you're looking, okay, well, what, what was the facts? What was the evidence before you? What's the law? Is this just untenable in light of the evidence and the law? So this is a broader look at the material that was before the tribunal, the submissions that were before the tribunal, and the law that the tribunal was bound to apply to ensure that this decision is, in fact, tenable, defensible within those factual and legal constraints. And you'll remember that the court says, look, reasonableness is a single standard, but it accounts for the full context of the decision at issue. And this includes, and there's a bit of a laundry list, and again, I'll put these notes up at the end of the class today, so don't, don't worry if you don't catch every single thing I say, uh, but they say reasonableness accounts for the governing statutory scheme, as well as other relevant statutory or common law. So you have to look at, well, what does this statutory scheme in fact do? Let's look at the actual statutory scheme at issue. And let's remember there can be other statutes that bear on what would be a reasonable interpretation. Of course, the Slaywood case is pre-Vavilov, but you'll remember it wasn't really the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act or the National Energy Board Act alone that brought down that decision on its merits. Rather, you had to go into the Species at Risk Act to really understand how that decision failed to um, meet the bar of reasonableness. So sometimes you have to look a bit afield to find the full nature of the uh, statutes. Of course, I will give you every statute you need to consider on the exam. I'm not asking you to obviously bring outside information into that. Similarly, you'll remember the common law can bear upon what's a reasonable interpretation. And the example that is uh, given in Babylon, and I think is quite a good one, is uh, well, what if the Supreme Court of Canada uh, has conclusively interpreted the scope of a criminal offense at common law, and that comes up in maybe an immigration hearing. Has this person committed a criminal offense? 
and the immigration officer were to, you know, interpret that offense in a way that's not consistent with the Supreme Court of Canada's common law interpretation, that would be a problem. You can't you can't abandon the common law, you know, when it's uh, when it bears directly upon a question you're asked to decide. So you remember that this is all defensible in light of the law, defensible in light of the um, legal constraints. Another component of that is the principles of statutory interpretation. And you'll remember that the court said, look, I'm not asking you to recite the modern approach to statutory interpretation and do exactly the same analysis that a court might do when grappling with this question in first instance, but what I am asking you to do is to interpret the statute in accordance with the legislation's purpose. To do that purposive statutory interpretation, which doesn't just you know, hive off one's provision of a statute and interpret it in a way that's not defensible in light of the statutory regime and the legislature's goal as a whole. And that fundamentally is the nub of the modern approach to statutory interpretation, ensuring that you're reading is defensible in light of the act as a whole and the goal of parliament. And at a high level, that's what we need to see from an administrative tribunal in order to be reasonable. So if you want to think about this second category of things to look at in a reasonableness analysis, there is defensible basically in light of the legal constraints and the factual constraints. And what I've just gone through is the considerations you'd look at to see if you're defensible in light of the legal constraints. And I turn now to what's what needs to be done to be defensible in light of the factual constraints. And what you're looking at here is the evidence before the decision maker and the facts upon which the decision maker may take notice as well as the submissions of the parties. Now, of course, in an exam, you're going to have a relatively limited window into the evidence that will be before a tribunal. I couldn't give you a 100-page record to sift through, certainly. Um, so, You'll want to pick up on the key, you know, sort of factual considerations that I've uh, put into the prompt. One thing that you may want to do also, though, is if there is something that you think factually would really bear on the decision that you don't know, I certainly am happy to see you flag that. You know, in order to more fully analyze this, I'd have to ask my client about this, this, and this. Those are good things that can show deep understanding of the material. The submissions of the parties somewhat straddles the line between the factual and legal constraints because the submissions of the party can show uh, you know, how the party is presenting the facts, what facts have in fact been um, told to the decision maker to rely upon, 
you know, the court's not going to look kindly to there being some little thing buried in the evidence that nobody took the decision maker to that, you know, perhaps could bear on the ultimate outcome, but wasn't in any of the submissions then being waived on judicial review is making the decision unreasonable. They're going to say, hey, did you bring that evidence to the attention of the decision maker? That's why the submissions of the parties matter. But similarly, in the legal constraints, you want to think, did you raise that legal theory that you're now saying matters so much? Uh, and it's, it's human nature that you know, when you get a second look at something uh, six months down the line, you think, ah, legally, there's a better theory that I want to advance. But you want to be clear that if you didn't advance it in the court below, it may be tricky to advance it on judicial review because hard to say it's unreasonable not to have considered something you weren't asked to consider. That's why the submissions matter so much. Um, there's a few more factors that you want to work into this reasonableness framework in your mind. The next one, uh, which you probably can actually slide into your notes under the legal constraints, is the past practices and decisions of the administrative body. And you remember here, this is the idea that, look, an administrative body isn't bound by its own precedence. And they're allowed to go one way in one case and then go another way in another case on the exact same legal question, even on very similar or identical facts. I told you about that trailer park that I dealt with where they kept evicting people for the same reason. And sometimes they were successful at the RTB and sometimes they weren't. But they kept trying the same theory over and over and over again. And that problem is addressed in Vavilov in that very clever way where they say, listen, you're allowed to depart from your own previous decisions. You are not bound by them. It won't be unreasonable merely to not have followed a previous decision. However, if you've got a big discord in the decisions coming out of your tribunal, and that's brought to your attention, it would be unreasonable to not try to resolve that discord to explain why you're going one way and not the other. And the final contextual factor the court highlights is the potential impact of the decision on the person. Kind of drawing off the Baker analysis as well. And this is the idea that, look, there isn't you know, different standards of reasonableness. But part of the context for what would make a decision reasonable includes the stakes, the stakes at issue. If it's just a fishing permit so that I can go and you know mess with some fish on the weekend with a friend, it's just not important on the level that so many decisions are. And a court's not going to say, well, you didn't provide a full answer to every submission, and you didn't give the level of detail, and I don't understand how you grappled with all the factual constraints. However, if it's a massively important decision, the court will expect much deeper analysis and will be much less willing to just assume that a factor was considered or that a, um, something that went unsaid was, in fact, within the attention of the decision maker. And you know, that's, you see even within that Slaywood-Tooth case, a hundreds and hundreds of page long report and some of the assertions 
um, judicial review or that these were inadequate reasons. Well, that's you know, you're getting at the idea that when it's really important, the level of analysis and the depth of consideration may be or, um, you know, consequently much deeper. So that's sort of the final contextual factor to put in there. So when you're going through your Babelov analysis, um, you know, I don't necessarily need you to go through each one of these in a rote manner, and if some of these are really not at issue, I won't uh, certainly ding you for not mentioning every single factor. Uh, however, you probably want to at least mentally go through them, and it may not, it wouldn't hurt to go through them on your exam, certainly. So you want to be very comfortable with what each one of these is getting at, and use that as your sort of your, your formula to bring to bear on your exam. So, yeah. So, on the reasonable analysis, you say the first factor is the legal constraint analysis in question. So, on that, the first one you mentioned was to uh, to look at the rationality of the internal procedure, uh, coherent procedures or or guidelines. The very first point you mentioned. So. So the test there, is it in and of itself a test to be coherently, uh, is it in and of itself a test for the decision maker to not follow the internal coherent procedures and guidelines, or is there any other uh, test for, for judges to decide? Like, um, what actually you can Yeah, sir, I think uh, you might have misunderstood. What I'm talking about there is whether the decision, the reasons that are offered are internally coherent. So that's just looking at the reasons themselves, um, not within the context of guidelines, which raise different questions that we'll get to, or we've gotten to, I think, about fettering and you know when you can have guidelines be binding or not. So if there's guidelines the tribunal has set out and those are mentioned in the question, you want to consider that within your analysis. But ultimately, what you're looking at there is just when I read these reasons, do they make sense? Do they explain to me how to get to this conclusion from these considerations? Exactly, that's the point. Is yeah. it a subjective test or an objective test? Because that would make sense for someone, especially if a lay person doesn't make any sense for them because they're out of the expertise. Or is there an objective test based on which you can scan? Yeah, it would be objective. I mean, just to say that I didn't understand it's not good enough. It's yeah. got to be. Is this a defensible, rational, understandable? Uh, yeah, so that's a good point. That it does make, you know, as a decision maker, you want to write for the audience of the person who's getting the decision. But as a reviewing court, you're really saying, do I understand this? Does this make sense? Does this track? So yeah, it's an objective test. Which the, the court stepping in to be, be the objective person. Yeah. So this is kind of underrated, but before we move, this, we did spend a bit of time in the course going through like QP and like John Smear in previous cases. Do you ask policy questions that it might be helpful to have history on, or should I kill that from my notes? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm reluctant to say kill it in your notes because it's also interesting. Oh. But, <laughs> but every word just has been better than the last. So, no, the, but yes, I don't want you to, it is not going to be a policy question, how has the Babelog 
reasonableness standard reverted to a uh, more QP-esque analysis that, that, that that's not happening. So is it one fact? It's just a fact. It's just a fact pattern. Okay. It's going to look like the practice exam. And that's it. And that's going to be it. Yeah, it's going to be one fact pattern. Um, now that that said, um, you know how where you get points in that sort of last third of my grading rubric is is really wide open. And if somebody were to bring in a um, you know a point to bear like this analysis would have looked different under a Dunsmuir framework or something like that, I might be like, wow, that's really impressive. Like it really that that part is sort of your chance to show your deep understanding. However, you can do it. Uh, but um, but in terms of what I'm just looking for in the exam, especially in terms of the issue spotting and the applicable framework, just the Vavilov framework, yeah. Any other questions? All right. Um, what's the ordinary remedy if a decision is unreasonable? Quash it and you remit it for reconsideration. This is a minor point, but important one. Who reconsiders it? Usually the same decision maker. It's up to the tribunal. That person might have retired. They might be busy on something else. The tribunal may have an internal policy of letting somebody else reconsider it. But the court's not going to direct somebody else reconsider it unless what? Exactly. Less bias. That's that's excellent. Exactly right. All right. So that's the Vavilov framework. You want to do the standard review analysis, then go through those factors on you know what is a reasonable decision, what makes a reasonable decision. I'm going to switch gears and talk about the charter and administrative law. I'm going to move through this fairly quickly because I do want to spend a good amount of time going through that practice exam, and we did do this very recently. But the issues you're looking for here are you want to think, okay, am I thinking about the tribunal being asked to opine upon legislation's constitutionality? I think I'm finding myself feeling uncomfortable with that in my circles. So, if you, if you were asking the executive, the decision maker, to decide whether or not legislation they're being asked to apply is consistent with the charter, that's where you're within this cutty chicks framework. That's where you're saying the question is, does this decision maker, is this decision maker intended by the legislature to decide these charter constitutional questions? And you'll remember the way that's answered is, well, are they empowered to decide questions of law? Because if they are, we presume they're empowered to ensure the law they apply is consistent with the supreme law, is consistent with the charter. So the Cardi-Chicks framework is used for deciding if this decision maker can decide the constitutionality of legislation it's been asked to apply by the legislature, 
And the analysis is, are they empowered to decide questions of law? Yeah. Yeah, I, so there was a trilogy of cases that came out right around the same time. Martin, Cuddy Chicks, and I'm drawing a blank on the third one. Slade. Is it Slade and Davidson? It might be Slade, yeah. So any one of those cases is a fine site for that point. Okay. I think it's best explained in Cuddy Chicks, and that's the case that most people sort of refer to it by. But Martin's also an important case on that point. So I don't think you're, you, you absolutely wouldn't be wrong to cite Martin for that point. And you know, there's a lot of propositions that more than one case can get you to. So um, absolutely. And as a general rule, I just want to be totally clear, I care about the analysis, not the name, not the case. So if you have the, if you and your neighbor set up the exact same analysis, um, one person says Cuddy Chicks, one person says Martin, and the third person perhaps doesn't say any case at all. You know, equal marks to everybody. Yeah. Um, so, oh yeah, go ahead. I just have a quick question. So with the Cuddy Chicks analysis, the Adam Tribunal is essentially permitted to fetter its own um, legislation if it's against the charter. That's one way of putting it that I don't, that I think is accurate in sort of how it describes the outcome, but probably uh, inaccurate in the way that it sort of puts a connotation on that. Because you wouldn't say that the jurisdiction's been fettered, you would say it's been correctly interpreted in light of constitutional constraints. But yeah, that's, in essence, that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna bounce back to how to decide if the tribunal has jurisdiction on a question of law in a second, which is of course key to that Cardi Chicks analysis. But I want to also remind you that that same question, does it have jurisdiction over questions of law, also comes to play in a different context, which is deciding whether the tribunal can grant a remedy under Section 24.1. Remember Section 24.1 of the Charter is the remedies provision. And there is this question as to whether administrative tribunals are a court of competent jurisdiction, which is the language from the Charter, for the purpose of granting a Section 24.1 remedy. And the case you have on that is Conway. And the court says, yes, those administrative tribunals are a court of competent jurisdiction to grant a Section 24.1 remedy if they have jurisdiction over questions of law. It's the same test for a different purpose. And I think if you look at the board, you can see how this is actually a pretty dramatically different um, question. So the, the Cuddy Chicks Martin question is, can the executive review the constitutionality of the legislation they're being asked to apply? The Conway question, on the other hand, is can the executive opine on and give a remedy for the constitutional conduct of another executive actor? So if you go to the an executive branch body, 
if you go to an admin tribunal and you argue before them, hey, my charter rights have been infringed in relation to this decision that you have jurisdiction over. Uh, you're, you're reviewing the, um, you're the Transportation Safety Board, and you review um, complaints concerning denial of services to people on uh, you know, publicly regulated transportation systems. And I've been denied access to this, uh, this service because of my disability. You know, I'm not allowed to bring my battery on an airplane because it's uh, some kind of chemical problem. And I want a remedy. Well, you're not saying the legislation's a problem. What you're saying is an individual decision of an executive actor, the you know, TSA, or the, whatever the TSA equivalent in Canada is, the transportation agent, um, exercise their discretion in a way that's inconsistent with the charter. That issue came before an executive body, the Transportation Safety Board. And the question is, can the Transportation Safety Board give you a remedy under the charter, or would you have to go to the court to do that? And Conway says, you can get it in the executive so long as they are empowered to decide questions of law. So these, yeah. Sorry, so uh, that's a quick question. So there must be a statutory provision which will allow tribunal to determine this stuff, right? Sorry, can you say one more time? There must be a statutory. Uh, so the strategic framework or the Conway framework. So there must be a statutory provision for this, right? The statute must allow the executive to do that. To okay, well, so that's what I'm get to in a second. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's a great. That's that's a perfect lead-in to the next point, which is. How do you decide if they are empowered to decide questions of law? Um, are there any other questions about the Conway 24-1 point? Because that's a tricky one, yeah. Um, there's kind of semantics, but I know we're going to get into Dore, but what we first need to go through Conway and figure out if the tribunal can give a remedy, if we're going to recommend a remedy from Dore. No, this is, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because it is, a different fundamental question that's asked in the Dore framework versus the Conway framework. Yeah, individual decision versus the legislation itself. But we really need to go through. Sorry, is, but that's, I think you're, you're saying Martin versus Conway, but Dore is even a third question. So Dore is when you say, hey, the decision of the, the, this tribunal has harmed my, my charter rights. I'm not saying, I didn't go to that tribunal to complain that somebody else harmed my charter rights, that's Conway. That person harmed my charter rights, tribunal, you can give me a remedy, I don't have to go to court. Dore is, I go to a tribunal, they have discretion, and they apply it in a discriminatory way, or a way that hurts my charter rights in some other way. Then I have to go to the court and say, I need a remedy because this tribunal has, has interfered with my charter rights. Now you argue for the tribunal to not do so. You say, hey, don't my charter rights. But ultimately, Dore is about a court remedy for that. Yeah. So it is, that is a nuanced, subtle distinction, but you do want to have in your head what's a Conway, you know, what's a Cuddy Chicks Martin, and what's a Dore. Uh, so you should have those, those figured out. Yeah. Um, just, just make me clear. So Dore is something you plead at the court against the tribunal. And Conway is something you plead at the tribunal against another executive actor. You nailed it. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, at the tribunal, do you, you say, hey, 
you know, Dory says, you've got to respect my charter as exercising your discretion, so you better do so. But ultimately, the remedy you seek in a Dory analysis comes from the judiciary yeah. to say, the tribunal breached my rights. I have yeah. another question. So I read something in my notes about how the tribunal is only allowed to grant remedies that are uh, that they are empowered to under the statute. So and Section twenty four one allows you to grant any remedy that you can. So. You, that's a great point. I'm glad you raised it. And if you remember, we talked about 24-1 remedies. We came around to this point that it, they don't really get you that far because the court has said, in essence, you're allowed to grant any Section 24-1 remedy that you are entitled to grant under the statute. So it's, sort of, it's a bit circular, and it lands back to basically you have the same remedies. But where it does matter, is it could be a significant argument in favor of getting that remedy. You'd say, hey, not only do you have the discretion to give me this remedy, this is necessary to address a charter violation. So in the case of the person who wants to bring a battery on a plane, if the Transportation Safety Board doesn't have the power to give you money in, in you know, return for a violation of your rights, you can't say 24-1 means I gotta get money you'd have to be stuck with the remedies the board has. But if the board has the power to grant you a personal exemption from the requirements of the transportation you know, to not carry these batteries, then you could say, the Constitution demands you give me this remedy. That's it. I'm glad you raised that, because that was a nuance that I, I certainly overlooked in the review. Um, so the next thing is, well, how do we even go about deciding if you have jurisdiction to grant these 24-1 remedies, to uh, opine upon the constitutionality and the cutting chips framework, i.e., how do I decide if you have jurisdiction over questions of law? And you want to remember that can be either explicit or implicitly granted in the statute. Explicit, the statute can just say, this tribunal has jurisdiction to decide questions of law, Quite often, you find it in those privative clauses, because they'll say, hey, you have exclusive jurisdiction to decide questions of law. However, even if it is not explicit, you can consider whether there is an implicit power. And you consider there the statutory mandate of the tribunal. What are you asked to do? and whether deciding questions of law is necessary to fulfill this mandate effectively. And just fundamentally, to, to do what we're asking you to do, do you have to decide questions of law? If you're the residential tenancy branch, do you have to decide questions of law to interpret and apply the law as it you know, is it, set out in the Residential Tenancy Act to landlord-tenant disputes? Of course you do. Right? There's, you can't get around decideless questions of law within your statutory mandate. Um, generally, you look at whether the tribunal is adjudicative in nature. That type of adjudicated tribunal would tend to be empowered to decide questions of law. And you want to consider practical considerations as well, including the tribunal's capacity to decide questions of law. So if you have somebody whose job is basically just to look at a form and make sure everything's filled out and then stamp it for a permit if it is and not stamp it if it's not, 
That's not an adjudicative function. That's not the type of person who really has the power to say, wait a second, you know, box 26A calls into question this provision of the Social Security Act, and I don't think that's consistent with the Charter because of, you know, an equality concern. Like, that's not the type of person who's been empowered to decide questions of law. However, if you have the uh, Social Security Tribunal, whose job is to adjudicate and decide upon denials of benefits, well, that's the type of board that would be asked to decide these questions of law. All right. This is all tricky stuff. I mean, clearly the charter stuff uh, does get more complicated than some of the other parts of the framework. But I want to keep moving so we can get through it, get into the Doré analysis briefly, um, so we can ultimately get to the exam. So what do you do when it's alleged the tribunal made an order that violated charter rights or exercises discretion in a way that infringed the charter? Well, that's where you come down to this Doré analysis. Has the tribunal exercised its discretion in a manner consistent with charter values? You'll remember that the court was hesitant to just say, do a charter analysis and apply the Oaks test if you find an infringement of a charter right, because they didn't want to make a path to uh, too easily abandon deference and get into a correctness review. So they said, no, we're going to stay within an administrative law framework, and we're going to stay within a reasonableness analysis, and we're going to ask, have you reasonably balanced the state's legislative interest, the legislative goal, the goal of the legislation that the state is trying to accomplish, as against the charter-protected values at stake? And you're looking for a decision that best protects the charter values at issue while allowing the state to accomplish its statutory objective. And just pausing here before, you want to just keep in the back of your mind that this, this all presumes the state's statutory objective is itself charter compliant. Because if it's not, you could challenge that statute in a Cuddy Chicks type framework or go to the court to challenge that statute. So you're saying, look, the statute's okay. It's not the statute. It's the way the statute's being applied. I know it's not a strictly admin case, but insight is a great example of it's not the statute's fault. It's how the discretion under the statute's being applied. That's the problem. And that's where you say, are you applying your discretion in a way that best protects the charter values at stake. So fundamentally, that's the door A charter values analysis. Have you reasonably balanced charter values as against the state statutory objective? And in essence, has the state, has the balancing best protected the charter values at stake while allowing the objective to be accomplished. And fundamentally, that's a reasonableness balance that there'll be some measure of deference in relation to. I had the question, oh sorry, yeah, let's ask, go ahead, yeah. Oh, sorry, can you just clarify the 
Yeah. Yeah, that is a great question. I'm going to come to that in a second. That, that's, that's a, yeah. Just procedurally, um, if it is a charter individual administrative decision, um, we first look at the procedural fairness under Baker. We skip that a lot because that's a different framework, and then we go straight to Dore. So we still do Baker and then go to Dore as the standard of review. Sorry, could you ask that one more? I think if there's a procedure, sorry, if, if there's a case where the individual decision of a tribunal infringes someone's charter values, we would still look at the tribunal's process under Baker for procedural fairness, and then we would use the standard review question through DORE, and we wouldn't really look at travel law, correct? Um, well, I mean, in order to assess the charter component, you wouldn't need to look at travel law. That's right. You would just say, this is going to be analyzed under the DORE framework on a charter values approach. However, almost inevitable, absolutely inevitably on the exam, um, I'm going to be looking for you to do a battle law. Now, like there's going to be, you, you don't want to just put all your eggs in a charter basket. You'd want to also consider more broadly whether there's other problems with the. I guess I'm just confused. Like, would there be a situation where we do both a battle law and a Dory analysis? Because there's the specific carve out that you talked about in battle law about constitutional questions that yeah. include charter rights or charter values. Yeah, so what I would say is you would say this case raises both uh, charter issues and non charter administrative law issues. The framework for the charter will be the Dory framework. The framework for looking at the substance of the rest would be the battle law. Yeah, so. Yeah, that's, you know, I think that the nub of your question is should I be trying to sort of stuff door eight into a Babylog framework or do I look at it separately? And that's an excellent question, and the answer is look at it separately. It doesn't really help to put it into a Babylog framework. All right, so charter rights versus charter values. The age old, sort of not age old, but very, very ripe question. I literally just finished an application for relief to the Supreme Court of Canada last night asking the court to take up the question of rights versus values because it is legitimately unsettled. Um, the framework you want to use on your exam is charter values. You want to say that the Dore framework asks whether the charter value has been adequately protected but you want to say, I think, you want to be really sure the best understanding that the degree to which there's a difference between charter rights and charter values is unclear. And as has been set out by the judges, not in the majority, in the Trinity Western University case, there is good reason to think that rights and not values are what receive charter protection and where the focus of the analysis should be. And if that is right, then there cannot be a difference between charter rights and charter values. They mean the same thing. Now, this is something that's been bugging me. There's a question early in the course as to, well, what are we doing my exam about charter rights versus charter values? And I've been honestly struggling with it ever since. Um, 
In terms of sort of the first two components of the way I grade it, spotting the issue, setting up the framework, I just want to see the Doré framework applied. And I want to see the Doré framework identified, you know, when you're spotting the issues. The charter issue, Doré framework, here it is. In terms of really wowing me and showing me, hey, there's some deep understanding going on here, if you can engage with this problem, um, you know, that certainly is something that, that could be uh, worthwhile on your exam. Um, to say that the notion that values are different than rights, you know, leads to a potentially problematic conclusion wherein somebody could find their rights receiving less protection in an admin setting. The other criticisms from Justice Brown you know, include, does that mean you don't consider the jurisprudence that's delineated those rights, define those rights? These are problematic issues that are unresolved. So you know, just as a general rule, if you, if you spot and explore legitimate unresolved issues, that's, I certainly am impressed by that on the exam. But the core of what I'm testing is to show me that you understand the law as it has been set out by the courts. And in this case, that means the Doré framework. So fundamentally, you know, the, the tough part for you is you only have three hours. And if you start going down a rabbit hole of writing an essay on charter rights versus charter values, and you don't spot the other issues, you don't give me the frameworks for the other question, the other parts of the exam, you know, clearly that's been a strategic mistake in your approach to the exam. At the same time, if you feel like, okay, there's six issues, I've set out the frameworks for each, it's two hours I'm done, you know, I'll walk out, you might say, maybe I should delve into some of these unresolved issues, give them a bit of analysis, try to sort of show that deep understanding. So I know that's not very satisfying, it's, you know, there's a, that's kind of the tension that I'm sort of seeing you maybe having to grapple with in this exam. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Don't like timed exams, uh, but that's what we have. Um, all right, so I'm gonna move past door A and just quickly touch on Aboriginal law of federal court. Um, the Aboriginal law that we taught, we, we learned, you, know, you want to broadly understand there's these three ways in which Aboriginal law and administrative law can come together. You know, the one is when a band tries to use administrative law to, as an arbiter between its relationship with the state. And this most notably comes up in these funding decisions. How much funding should we give to this band and why? And as the book set out, it's really hard to frame these within admin law because there's almost no statutory law directing, there's wide discretion, and the courts are just reluctant to get into and weigh the adequacy of funding. And we saw that exemplified in a kind of microcosm in the Slaywitooth case, where we saw Tim Dixon make that submission and basically it get uh, brushed aside by the federal court of appeal. The second thing we talked about is how the duty to consult can be reviewed 
within administrative law. But we want to remember, while the existence and scope of a duty to consult, i.e., do you have to consult with whom and on what projects, that's a correctness question. The discharge of the duty to consult, did you adequately consult, is a reasonableness deferential standard. And that's kind of the key point to take away in terms of the duty to consult. You also want to remember within administrative law the limits that you have on actually ascertaining the existence or scope of Aboriginal rights and title, i.e. that you can't try to prove title within a judicial review of a decision you know, that you say infringed or claimed but not yet proven title. Same with treaty rights. We also talked a bit about how administrative law can provide a um, oversight of banned governance that you can bring a judicial review of a banned governance decision or in the case we saw failure to make a decision. Those are kind of the three areas you want to have and those are the the issues you want to be aware of. Um, generally though, apart from there being the whole backdrop of all the, you know, the, the, the myriad issues of Indigenous Crown relations, and we talk about those tensions, you know, settler court, overseeing self-governance is just a tension in and of itself. Um, despite all those tensions, fundamentally when it actually, the rubber hits the road on the admin law, it's, it's general administrative law principles that get applied. Um, we talked briefly about federal court. You know, you want to be able to identify that's the court you'd be going to if you had a federal decision. You want to broadly know about its jurisdiction, that any federal board, commissioner, other tribunal is sort of the hook for jurisdiction, and that means anybody exercising any power under federal legislation. And then you gotta remember, you have to go to federal court then if you want to judicially review the decision and get one of those equitable writs, uh, in, or at least relief in the nature of certiorari, mandamus, etc. Um, final thing we talked about was accessibility to admin tribunals. Um, really for your exam, I think you're not gonna be asked to uh, go deep into you know, the administrative tribunal design. Um, you know, good to remember those, those tensions between different procedural rights, different ways you allocate resources, and you know, potentially, I guess, you could find a way to work it in, but I, I don't really expect that too much. Um, the one question that you might want to have in your mind from that lecture is standing. You know, who can bring a matter before an admin tribunal? and who could judicially review a decision of admin tribunal. You want to remember for who can come before a tribunal, that's going to be in the statute. It's going to tell you it can be different for different statutes. Who can judicially review an administrative decision? Remember at common law, it's if you're 
aggrieved, affected, or exceptionally prejudiced by the decision. So not just anybody at large, but you have to show some sort of special connection to this decision. Or you can go through the public interest standing test coming out of the downtown Eastside sex workers case. So that's broadly what we covered in the class. Uh, I really want to get into the exam. So let's take a really quick like five minute break and then we'll get back and get into the exam. It's funny, I just, remember saying when we were talking about federal court that a lot of people are just scared of it and don't like to engage with it because it's just something they're not used to. And literally just got a text, it was like, are you able to help me bring a federal court judicial review question mark? I'm scared of it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, nothing to be scared of. So let's talk about the practice exam. A couple students left on the, because they said, look, I haven't had a chance to do the practice exam yet. I'd rather try it and then listen to the recording of what you talked about later. And if that sounds like something you'd like to do also, I won't be offended if anybody gets up and leaves. Um, so actually, if you do leave, I'll just say briefly before anybody goes, sort of what I wanted to say at the end, but I'll say it now. It's just been an absolute pleasure teaching this course. And one thing I want to offer is, um, you know, if anybody wants to talk about administrative law practice, where to find administrative law jobs, alternative types of legal practice, like I practice by myself out of my house, which is a different thing that there's pros and cons, but I like quite a bit. Um, working for government or clerking, I'm really happy to talk about any of those things. Um, and don't feel like if you don't talk to me next like, you know, month or two, like if years down the line, if you want to reach out, that's absolutely fine. So I just want to say that. Um, but now let's talk about the exam um, with those who are going to stay. Yeah, thank you, yeah. I haven't yet received final clarity on the reading time question, but I anticipate allotting at least 15 minutes of reading time in addition to the three hours uh, for the exam. So, um, and I do think the exam will look broadly like this in terms of length, number of issues, um, giving you some statutes to look at, and giving you a fact pattern. Um, what I was thinking we might do is, um, you know, go through the exam, uh, have people identify where they see a a potential issue and then talk briefly about the framework that you would apply to resolve that issue. So um, move, maybe just starting, we can, I can immediately ask, um, the first issue that, or one of the first issues that I would think you might want to consider is where would you go? Or what court would you go to? 
So did anybody um, notice the answer there? Yeah, so if you go into federal court, it's not a huge thing, but you want to just have that in your mind. And this is federal legislation, I will be going to federal court. Um, the next thing that I might consider attacking is remedies. You know, I, I always like to think about what you might get. Did anybody tackle the question of remedies in their practice? So what remedies did you see? I think uh, I, would, I would consider a quashing decision. Yeah, absolutely. That's like, that. Yeah, quash and remit. Precisely. That's that's going to be the main remedy you're going to be able to potentially get your your client. Um, and in assessing that, yeah, I think it's a nice thing to always put quash, remit, and advise that you might get the same substantive outcome. You might still not get your security clearance in this case. Were there any other points or nuances on remedy that people? I think there's a bias issue here. Yes. That's I, what, um, it's a strong argument. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. So if there's a bias issue, we talked about it a second ago, but that would, that would affect the remedy potentially, because it I could be. Much, I have a question here. Yeah. So this is just Mrs. Stone's assumption that uh, the executive tribunal or the person might be biased. But uh, should we like found anything, I mean, uh, are we supposed to find anything uh, to prove the bias? Yeah, all you have is what you have here, and I agree it's pretty thin. So I think you would say, you see that there's some issues that say I may be able to um, send a reasonable apprehension of bias question. Um, you know, I don't, knowing what I know, I don't know if this is going to be enough. However, if it is, the outcome would be to set aside the decision and to have it remitted to a different decision maker. But yeah, that's, that's a, a good point. And so, there's, I want to say, look, I, I like tackling remedies at the outset just because you like to think practically, what might you get? Let's say you're writing your exam, you've already done a remedies section, and like, oh crap, there's bias at the end. Uh, you tag on, and if it's bias, the remedy will be different. The remedy will be different. That's totally fine. I mean, I'll find I'll find your points where they are. You don't have to worry about organization. You know, the more organized it is, the easier it is for me going through the thirty-five exams. But I'll um, I read everything at least twice, and I'll, I'll find it. Um, there's one more little potential remedy issue that's kind of thrown out there, a bit of a red herring. I don't know if anybody. Yeah. I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but the, the fact pattern reminded me of this site where they actually made an order, um, but I was going down the path of it's pretty rare to that courts actually issue mandamus. Yeah, so that's that's a very good one. That that's that to me that really when I was reading today, that really that's the true red herring, the mandamus, because they did make the order. That was left in because I drafted the fact pattern differently where I had two people and one person never got an order at all and one person got an order. And then it got complicated and I sort of edited it and I forgot to kind of take that out. But so that nine month delay really is truly a red herring in the sense that at this point, you know, you don't need a mandamus order. But if you wanted to throw in something saying there's been a nine month delay, there has been an order made, however, you know, during that nine month delay, you might have been able to argue um, 
for a mandamus. That, that could be, you know, just a, a little throw-in line. But yeah, that, that really was a red herring in a sense because a decision was made. I don't, um, you know, often intentionally put a red herring into an exam. I think it's kind of unfair. Uh, but sometimes things slip in that aren't really, don't really go anywhere. And showing me that you see it, but it doesn't actually lead you anywhere is another way of showing deeper analysis. Um, the, the other thing I was thinking of, which is relatively minor but related to remedy, is um, right at the outset, I talk about her loss, right? She's, she's in, or there's been $2 million invested in this company. And so, you know, being able to say, I would advise my client that while there is a significant um, amount of money at stake, I could not use a judicial review of this decision as a basis to try to recover that $2 million. Again, it's a relatively minor point, but it would just help show it a full understanding of remedy. Um, yeah. That's a great, a great point. I hadn't thought of that as an issue, but I think that's a good issue to have spotted. Um, frankly, this is why when I, I set up the issues I see and then I read everybody's exam to see all the issues other people saw as well. And everybody's ones that I missed. That's a good one. Um, I think you're seeing, you know, exploring that. Are they going to question remit, but are they going to or instead direct that a particular result happen is a good one. I think a deep understanding of that point would probably land on, it seems unlikely that that would happen here. And the reason being um, that it, it does seem like there's some bases upon which you might be able to deny security clearance, even if you think the decision here you know, didn't get to a level of reasonableness. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to raise a point here and also ask a question on the losses. Uh, in the reasons the, uh, the decision maker issued at the end of the yeah. uh, I think we can also raise Baker's factors in, uh, in, uh, for, for the inadequate reasons because he has clearly stated that those cases are wrong and you're not eligible and also um, uh, uh, following my guidelines and stuff I'm deciding not to go into this without any kind of extensive set of reasons yeah, okay, that's a great point. And let's, let's park that for a second, because actually that gets at one of the most complicated things to unpack, which is how to grapple with reasons, whether to frame it in Vavilov or Baker, whether it's about the substance or the process. So let's park that for a second. I'll just tie off remedy, and then we'll go into, I think, procedural sure. fairness next. Sure. Yeah. Uh, on the two moment, uh so uh, can we also advise the client that, uh, or can we also tell them that uh, the other side would raise a argument that you should have mitigated your own loss by not raising two millions in advance or making sure that are you going to get the certificate or this uh, clearance uh, at all or not? Um, well, you might have raised a lot of money before making sure. So That's a brilliant point. That's something I hadn't thought of, but actually where that ties together the two red herrings into something that's a little less of a red herring, which is, look, you waited nine months to bring this judicial review, you incurred a loss, 
you shouldn't have invested anything before making sure you had your clearance. You could have brought a mandamus to get this earlier. It's your own fault. Those are, that's a bit of field from strictly admin law because really what you're getting at there would be how your failure to act promptly within an admin law process could impact your ability to get damages, say, in an action later for your loss. So it's a brilliant thought, um, and you know, it's the kind of thing you might want to, to include. It is, there's a, a balance as to how far down the line you go, but I, that is a good, that's a good, good issue to thought of. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's, let's think of this, going through the, um, sort of the analysis. You have, set out which court you're going to, you set out what remedies you might be looking at. Now you want to think about what are your chances of getting one of those remedies, of getting the decision set aside, you know, and remitted most likely. And there you want to then turn to, well, there's, there's two broad questions. Is this procedurally fair? And is this in substance defensible? Um, there's a charter issue as well that we'll talk about sort of broadly within the umbrella of substance. And so up to you how you want to tackle those. Um, I can say if you don't see both a procedural and a substantive issue on your exam, you know, keep looking because I, I will have both issues there. Um, did anybody not see either the procedure or substantive issues? Okay, that's good. That's, that's, that's very good. So the procedural issues, um, you might want to first identify what are the procedural rights that your client's looking for. So what are the procedural issues that people saw? The right to an oral hearing. Yeah, the right to an oral hearing. Absolutely. To me, that's uh, probably the, the key, uh, the first key procedural right that is, uh, that is being sought. Anybody see other procedural rights? Yeah. I don't know if it's just me, but like disclosure of the evidence that was before the decision maker. Yeah, I think there's a disclosure of evidence uh, potential issue. Um, and I think there's very closely related to that, but, but actually conceptually different. Even it's not just about the evidence, but it's also about sort of the the basis upon which the decision is going to be made, like the fundamental notice of the case to meet as opposed to the evidence that's going to be used to prove that case. And um, do you see what I'm, where I'm getting at with that? Like which issue? Yeah, the, uh, yeah exactly, exactly. And then tying into the facts, where did you see that come up on the facts? Oh, you mean this? Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to get at there. Exactly that um, she didn't know what event they were even talking about, and so how can you really defend yourself? Explain why you were seen with these house angels if it's so vague. You don't know, um, you know, what specific event they're talking about. So that's a great spot. So to me, that's the second major uh, procedural fairness issue and a harder one to see. Yeah. Yeah. Imaginary provisions. 
But uh, suppose we are looking for something, but we are not mentioned in those imaginary provisions. Then we will just consider, okay, the statute is not containing something like that. You know, I think that you, I'm tr the things that I'm really looking for, I'm giving you. But for something that you're like, I wish that I knew whether the statute said this or not, it's a relevant factor, just say that. Say, I, I will need to investigate whether there's this type of a provision. Oh. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's very tricky to come up with these problems, and inevitably there's going to be something that I, you know, sort of miss to put in there. Um, so, so to me, you, yeah, you have your, do you have a right to an oral hearing? Have you been, have you, has your Audi Alterum Partum right to know the case to meet been, uh, been satisfied? And then we touched on it earlier, but the bias is, of course, another form of procedural fairness. So to me, those are the three main procedural fairness issues that I sort of intended to put in there. Are there other ones that, that people, um, so you know, I'm gonna flag the, the, re, the, the reasons question. And so you had suggested that as a, as a Baker procedural fairness issue. But to me, the reasons here, there are reasons. And if you remember procedural fairness, what we're talking about is just a binary choice. Do you have a right to reasons or not? Here, there is a right to reasons. The statute actually explicitly requires there be reasons. But once you get reasons, if your complaint is that the reasons don't explain something, they don't explain why I've not followed this other line of cases at all, well, then you're actually within Babylon. You're within a substantive review framework. So you want to think reasons. Uh, are they required? Did I get them? That's binary, yes or no. Are they adequate? Do they withstand Babylon scrutiny? You know, that's the substantive question. That's the more tricky question. So if you were going to answer how you um, resolve whether you are entitled to an oral hearing, well, what's the framework to apply? Well, yeah, so you apply the Baker factors. So you're going to run through those Baker factors. Um, You'd say, okay, what's the nature of the decision? What's the nature of the decision maker? Is this more like a court or less like a court? Is this two sides arguing uh, in an adversarial context to a neutral decision maker? Or is this somebody you know, applying for something? And what, what would you say it's more like? Yes, I think so. I would, I would say that you probably characterize this, this Baker factor as this is less like a court, this is more like somebody applying for something, for you know, in essence a privilege. And so therefore, this Baker factor would tend to suggest less procedural fairness is owed. But then the next Baker factor, nature of the statutory scheme, is this the end of the line, or is there internal appeals? It's the end of the line. Yeah, it's the end of the line. It's the end of the line. There's no, there's no internal appeal of this. So that would tend to suggest you know, more fairness. The importance to the person affected? 
very important. So that's more. That's, I would say that's definitely a, a more factor. Legitimate expectations. Say neutral. I didn't really see. I didn't intend to put any in there. If, if you saw one, certainly let me know. But I didn't see a legitimate expectation. Um, she she actually found previous decisions, but. Can we tell out that that substantive legitimate expectation is not? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you so much for raising that. And no, that, that I can see why it's so close. You would think that, does that create a substantive legitimate expectation? It's a great question. But the answer is no. A substantive legitimate expectation needs to be more individualized. Not just, I analyzed your, your cases and I had a really good shot here. Rather, it needs to be, you know, I, I indicated to you that this approval's coming. You know, let's say you were to have written a letter saying, hey, it's been eight months, and I'd write back and say, listen, hold tight, we're processing it, everything looks good, you know, go ahead and, and keep hiring for your, for your business because you'll be open by Christmas. That's a substantive legitimate expectation that I'm gonna get a good result. And if they come back with no security clearance for you, better tell me why, better give me a chance to respond. So that, that's a great question. Uh, it, yeah. it should be directed to the applicant and and not previous decisions. Exactly, exactly. That, that's, that's a really good nuance, um, and I'm glad you raised that. Sorry, but does that get analyzed here or in substantive review then? Okay, again, a great question and a tricky, tricky point. So anytime you're talking about legitimate expectations, that always arises within the procedural framework because if you deny somebody either a procedural or a substantive legitimate expectation, the remedy is always procedural. It's never that you just get the result because you thought you would get the result. You're always allowed to not follow um, an expectation you let somebody have, but what you might have is more procedural obligations before you didn't give them that remedy. So if I were to say to this person, looking good, keep hiring, you know, Christmas is coming, you'll be open. Well, if I don't get the result, I can't say, this is unreasonable in a Babylon framework because they promised. You know, it, almost, you can, it feels almost, you can, say, you can feel why that doesn't work. But I can say, hey, they said I was gonna get this, and I have no idea why they changed their minds, and I never had a chance to address whatever it was that changed their mind. The court may say, okay, quash that decision, remit for reconsideration, tell the person why you, th at the last minute, changed your mind, and give them a chance to address that, because that might be, you know, dead wrong. So then if, um, just looking at how past decisions were decided uh, are, is not a good basis for having legitimate expectations, that gets back to the idea that the tribunal doesn't have to be consistent. Exactly. Exactly. Really, really well said. That's, that's getting the framework perfect. Um, okay, so you'd go through those factors. Uh, oh, say so tribunal's own choice of procedure. Um, we didn't really have anything in there. Um, you know, I, I could have put, you know, there's a guideline which says the minister shall not offer oral hearings or something like that. That would have been a tribunal own choice of procedure. So you would be saying that you've got, in essence, two factors suggesting more fairness, one factor suggesting less fairness, two factors that are neutral, 
What you're seeking is an oral hearing, which is towards the higher end of procedural obligations that may be imposed upon a tribunal. You might note something like, in this case, there does seem to be a credibility issue. You know, in essence, the minister says, "I didn't believe that. Per I didn't believe your evidence. That um, that's you know, you didn't associate with the Hell's Angels." Um, and so, how you respond, how you resolve that, you know, it's I don't know if there be an oral hearing required here or not, to be honest. So I don't really, I can't say there's a right or a wrong way to have resolved that. If you've identified those factors, identified the considerations that might go into applying those factors and then come to a conclusion, that's, you know, that's what I can, can hope for on the exam. Um, you'd want to then address the different procedural fairness points. I talked about the oral hearing. You'd want to point out the, um, you know, Audi Ultra and Partum requires that you know the case to meet, and there seems to be a, an issue here on not knowing the case to meet. Um, I don't necessarily expect you to come to this in the same eye that I have, but to me, if someone comes with this, with these facts, that's that's probably the thing I would say you're most likely to win on, to be honest. To me, like not being able to know um, what they were even talking about in relation to this sort of a meeting with uh, you know alleged House Angels members, that's the type of thing that actually jumps out as a big problem. Yeah. So, do you want us to consider the Pioneer Program separately from the Baker factors? So, how do they relate to each other? It's a great question. Um, if you want to ask yourself, do I have a right to notice? That's kind of what Audi Ultimate Pardon gets at. Do I have a right to know the case to meet? That is on the Baker spectrum, the most minimal. So, if you go to the Baker factors, you might land and say, okay, some point one way, some point the other way. I see a oral hearing question, and I see an Audi Ultra and Partum right to know the case to meet question. I would think it's very likely that I would be found to have um, an Audi Ultra and Partum right to know the case. I think it's possible, but not certain, that I get an oral hearing. And so then you've identified um, what procedural rights are given to you, and then you. Um, go through and say whether you think there's a you know, good argument that they've not been afforded to you. Uh, thanks for asking that, though. That's a, that's an important one. Um, so I don't want to, i got to move a little quickly um, so we get through this. Uh, for the bias, you know, you'd want to set out, um, there seems to be an allegation the decision maker, um, you know, had some extraneous factors or was receiving some information from somebody else. This could raise bias concerns. Um, I think you'd want to say there's nothing here that would suggest this would be a closed mind test. It's not a political decision. This is not investigated. This is actually deciding the um, substantive rights of this individual. And so the appropriate test would be a reasonable apprehension of bias. And as I alluded to earlier, um, I think it's a relatively thin bias case. You've got some points that are making it arguable, but, um, but it's certainly not, not clear. Uh, there's a nuance to the bias, and frankly to the Minlaw generally, 
that uh, you'll have much better luck on judicial review if you've raised it before the decision maker. Remember I said, you know, if you're gonna allege bias, you kind of have to get up there and say, hey, I think you're biased and let the person decide their own bias. Or I, or I don't think you're biased, but I think it looks like you're biased. And, um, and so this is the kind of thing you might want to flag that I don't know if the person raised bias with the decision maker directly, but that's the kind of thing I'd have to look, look into. Yeah. I was just trying to remember which was the case where we discussed um, in terms of being internet friends or Facebook friends with someone and that didn't necessarily actually mean that you were acquaintance. Yeah, I think that might have been in the book. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's a great point, and it's I actually forgot there was something directly on that, but it's not surprising. So, but yeah, I mean, I think. What I was trying to get at here was a dubious, but maybe arguable bias argument. And so if you can say, hey, and I, there's authority suggesting this probably doesn't get you over the hill, that's good. Um, but if I'm transmitting that something's there, even if you think it's pretty weak, you know, best to address it and say it's weak. Um, okay, so. Broadly, if you were to go through that, hit the Baker factors, hit bias, hit Audi Ultra and Pardon, hit an oral hearing, uh, I would say this person gets procedural fairness really well. That would be impressive. You then want to move on to the substantive potential problems with this uh, decision. And the first thing you want to do is identify the standard of review. Um, federal court, in essence, is shorthand for there is no legislative standard of review. If you don't see anything about a legislative standard of review, you could just say that, you know, I see no information about a legislative standard of review, so I'm going to proceed on the basis that it's going to be Babelov. If there, if I'm intending you to, you know, pick up on an ATA standard of review, I'll, I'll have that. So you then go on to, you know, apply Babelov. Did anybody here think there'd be a correctness review? Okay, that's good. Yeah, I don't think there's anything here that would suggest a correctness review. The one part that I could see you getting tripped up on is um, the potential charter issue around freedom of religion, making you think there's a constitutional issue. And that's, this is a Dore, constitutional issue, so it needs to be resolved in that framework. Oh, just a quick question. Yeah. So are we supposed to maintain a chronology? Like uh, in issues like first, uh, first year of fairness, then review, uh, standard of review, then theater issue, uh, do you expect uh, from us to maintain a chronology? Well, there's no right way to do it, in a sense, I don't care if you do Babelov substantive review first, and then Baker second, or Charter first, or I, I don't care about that. Um, it is helpful if you broadly break it up into here's my procedural review, here's my substantive review, um, you know, with the Charter review sort of adjacent to this substantive review. Um, headings really help me. Uh, I know some people handwrite exams, that's totally fine, uh, but if you are using um, the computers, you know, nice head headings, bold, 
all that stuff just it just really helps to to make my um, my reviews easier. And if you were to break it up into you know procedural review, substantive review, charter issue, remedies, you know, that type of a thing, that would be really helpful. But uh, as I say, like I. I know what it's like to write these exams. I know that things pop into your mind at 11.56 that you want to just get down on the paper. You might not be able to put them neatly into where you've got the nice headings. And I also know that these exams like matter uh, a lot. So I, like, I take this grade in them very seriously. I read every exam at least twice. So I'll find it. Like, don't worry. If it's in there, I'll find it. But the easier it is, the more time I get to do Christmas. <laughs> so that's good. Um, all right, so you set out the Vavilov approach, um, and you're going to be in a reasonableness review. So then you're going to be saying, okay, there's broadly these two questions I'm looking at. Is there an internally coherent uh, reasoning process and is it defensible in light of the factual and legal constraints and you know I think there's a number of potential issues with this uh, decision and so I just want to open it up to uh, any issues that people uh, people saw yeah um, it might not be totally related to that but I felt like there was an overall um, right of like a Roncarelli issue with a lot of discretion but I didn't know exactly how to slot that into the Vavlov framework. So I was wondering how we should address something like Roncarelli, where there's kind of a broader issue yeah. of having so much discretion um, that may not have directly manifested in the way the reasons are provided. Yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about it in having a Roncarelli issue, because to me what you have here is the statute is pretty clear that the legislative purpose is protection of health and safety at a high level. And then you have the minister or the minister's delegate defending that decision on the basis that it's a safety issue that I'm concerned about. And so to me, you're probably good on a Ron Corelli analysis because the discretion is being exercised for the statutory purpose. But if you wanted to to flag that, that you know, and, say, and go through that, that's absolutely fine. But it wasn't really an issue that to me popped up as being um, one of the main substantive problems with this decision. Although I'm curious how the people had other substantive. Um, so where this flagged for me was section 53, where they say applicant does not pose an unacceptable risk. So I mean, there's a valid argument that how uh, something that happened 10 years ago is an unacceptable risk to not grant security clearance. Yeah. Okay, let's hold on that 10 years ago. They may pick up on, there's even another section that mentions that as well in the statute. Um, so if you look at uh, section... Where is it? Section 53.2a, the factors the minister may consider to determine the level of risk. You see um, the date of the most recent event or conviction. 
So I think your point is exactly right, and not only is it generally required to consider the 10-year delay, it's specifically required as well. And so I think that's a big one. I think you'd want to say there's no consideration whatsoever of this factor, which is mandated by the statute. And this is a tricky, nuanced part of admin law because it's not always the case that the decision maker has to touch on every single argument that's raised or every single potential you know, factor that could go into um, exercising a discretion. And this is one of those areas where the importance of the decision within a Babylon framework may require more or less uh, analysis. So it's not necessarily fatal to not have mentioned the 10 years, but to me it jumps out as something you'd want to flag. That you were asked to consider the recency of a conviction. This seems to be pretty old news, and you didn't even mention it. So that I'd make an argument on that for sure. Just um, a question right here on the, the on this like going to criminal background. Yeah. So here the crime or this time, is it is it good for, or better for her to raise the question of uh, statute of limitation on those allegations, or is it okay to raise us? Yeah, statute of limitations wouldn't affect her because statute of limitations precludes a criminal prosecution, but it doesn't preclude consideration in administrative contexts. So, but but the essence of a statute of limitations, sort of the idea that people can change, and that sort of is worked into the statutory framework in the direction to consider how long ago the the conviction was. Yeah. Um, there are other, uh, what are some other things people thought about the substance of the decision? Yeah. One thing I felt is it really felt flat in terms of reasonableness on the facts. I felt there was a bunch of logic jumps, right? You have, you know, it was advised that she had been seen by the police with two individuals who were suspected to be associates of the Hell Angels. And then, you know, our decision makers jumping for that to say, you know, I accepted that you were willingly associating with no members of organized crime organizations. Nailed it. I, I, that's exactly one of the things I was looking for. It's Precisely right. Yeah, logically on its face, that's, that's a jump that doesn't seem defensible. And I think there's a second one as well in terms of the um, trafficking, right? She's saying she was just kind of passing. Basically, the way I read it was she was kind of basically doing a pop pop passing yeah. deal. Um, and then jumping for that, you know, especially when that charge was yeah. stayed, jumping for that to be like, all oh, right, you are clearly a yeah. drug trafficker. It's Absolutely. A huge Absolutely. I was going to control F for pop, pop, pass on everyone's exam. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, mean, I think that's right. I was getting at that. Yeah. That, that's, those are the sort of logical things that it's like, I, I don't see how you're getting here from here. You seem to be making a jump. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm cognizant of the time, and I'm happy to keep uh, to keep talking about this until we get kicked out. But I, maybe I'll just sort of speed up a bit, and I don't want to keep you forever, and sort of show you some of the other things I, I thought of and was was hoping to maybe see you see see you see. So it was mentioned earlier, um, but sort of the inadequacy of the reasons explaining why you're departing from the. Um, this line of authority saying that, you know, these types of convictions are not a, a problem. Um, that to me 
requires more explanation if you're gonna pass that Babelog um, requirement of, of resolving tensions in, the, in your own tribunal's jurisprudence. Um, anybody think of anything with respect to policy guideline number six? is a fettering issue. Yeah, exactly. I think that you could say that they, the, the uh, minister's delegate may have unreasonably fettered their discretion by treating that guideline as, as, as binding and preclusive of considering the specific factors of this case. Um, The those I think those are really the main substantive issues that I that I was directing in this. Um, I'm sure there's more things you could sort of tease out, and if you see other things and you thought that they were they were there, I, I'm sure you're not wrong. I think this does raise quite a bit of issues. The charter values, though, is another big one that I think you need to um, make sure you caught. And so here, what you have is somebody saying, you know, I'm in this position because of my religion. And so in exercising your discretion, you know, is the, is the statute that says, consider criminal convictions when granting a, a security clearance, is that constitutionally problematic? Like, no, almost certainly not. You're not, you're not challenging the Constitution as violating your freedom of religion, but it's how that statute is applied to your particular facts. Because the statute doesn't say anybody with a criminal conviction can absolutely not get a security clearance. It's consider the criminal conviction as one of the factors. So there's a discretion to consider this. So when exercising that discretion, you, know, you need to be cognizant of charter values. And here the charter value would be protection of freedom of religion. And you would need to try to balance the state objective in having you know, safety and security in the cannabis market to you know, protect against the illicit sale of, of this uh, product, you know, as against the religious freedom of individuals who may use that in a um, religious purpose. So you want to identify that issue, set out how there's a balancing to be done, and flag it as an issue that you would raise on judicial review. Um, you know, there's potentially uh, one issue that I I think I didn't really stress enough in this class. I did raise it a little bit within the discussion of federal court and BC Supreme Court. Is the degree to which you can get disclosure within an administrative process, um, and so you may want to flag as something that could help with resolving this type of a uh, fact pattern that starting a judicial review would entitle you to disclosure of the record before the tribunal. And that might help with ascertaining whether this person in fact sent a disparaging email to the, you know, to the decision maker or, um, you know, whether, uh, exactly what basis they were looking at for these criminal, alleged criminal uh, convictions and associations, or the criminal associations. So that is something that I didn't emphasize really that much in the course, but it is something that you might want to have in the back of your head um, that 
unresolved questions you might be able to resolve through disclosure, and that's a power that starting a judicial review has. Um, so ultimately, you know, you're, you're going to want to go through this fact pattern, address the procedural and substantive issues, talk about the remedies, talk about what court you're going to, give your best analysis as to what um, is likely to happen, try to show a deep understanding of the course material to the extent you can. Um, I'm sure you'll leave feeling like you missed something. Um, I'm sure you'll feel, or you may feel like you didn't have enough time. You may feel like you got through and you had too much time. Um, don't worry, uh, I'm, if, you've, if you've followed along, you're at this review, I'm sure you're doing, gonna do absolutely fine. Um, I'm really happy to keep talking about the exam now, just sort of offline. I'm also happy to talk about it later. I'm happy to take emails on anything. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'll wrap up there, but I'm happy to stick around.